Escape Pod, number 258. September 16th, 2010. Today's story. Raising Jenny by Jenny Lee Singer. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. I just got back from Worldcon, where I met some wonderful writers. I talked to several pros and convinced many to send their stuff to Escape Pod. I won't drop names until the contracts are signed, but I'm pretty excited. Award season is also winding down, and I want to do a couple of shout-outs. First, sincere congrats to Norm Sherman for winning the Parsec for Best Podcast Anthology for his show, The Drabblecast. If you enjoy Norm's host spots, then you should definitely tune in to The Drabblecast. Drabblecast features decidedly weird stories. Norm's personality makes the show, and I'm so thrilled they won the Parsec. In other podcast news, I was invited to live blog the Hugos with Cheryl Morgan, noted SF critic, and was there when Starship Sofa made history as the first podcast to win a Hugo Award. They took home the award for Best Fanzine, another fully deserved award. If you want quality science fiction along with commentary, editorials, and more, then you need to check it out. And if that's not enough, Clark's World took home the Hugo for Best Semi-Prosine, meaning that online media is finally getting some attention. What also happens in September is the return to school, rites of passage for many children as they mark another year of growing up. And that's what this week's story is about. We bring you Raising Jenny by Jenny Lee Simner. Ms. Simner has published three young adult fantasy novels, Bones of Fairy, Thief Eyes, and Fairy Winter. This story originally ran in the anthology Not of Woman Born. And no matter what you want your future to bring, you don't have to go out of state for story time. Raising Jenny by Jenny Lee Simner There's a snapshot my mother used to carry in her wallet. An old photo, two dimensions rather than three, colors flat and washed out like all old photos. My sisters and I are lined up in size order, wearing matching pink dresses. Susan, the oldest, is first, tall and proud in front of our house's white picket fence, looking out into the bright day, smiling. Annalise next, squinting into the sun, scowling slightly. And me, Adrian, on the end, eyes cast toward the sidewalk, toward a dress hem let hastily down to cover skinned knees. My dark brown hair is pulled back from my face, tangled curls escape around the edges. Somewhere out of sight, Mom stands behind the camera. She's telling me to look up, into the lens. I can still see the frown on her face. I'd been out in the yard, climbing some tree. I hadn't wanted to come down and change into my dress. The edge of the photo, where I'm standing, is dog-eared and smudged with fingerprints, as if Mom has been worrying at it. Even then, I know, I wasn't very good at being what she wanted. The day before Mom died, she lined us up by the edge of her hospital bed, staircase-style once more. No frilly dresses now. Susan in her lab coat, straight from the university. Annalise in her suit and jacket, taking an hour away from her law firm. And me, between jobs, and still the shortest, in jeans and an oversized sweatshirt. I don't know what I expected. Tears or hugs, final words. A worried lecture, maybe, about how at 24 the youngest of her daughters was still unmarried. I stared out the window, into a gray St. Louis spring, waiting. But Mom said only, I'm not going. Annalise drew a sharp breath. Susan's eyes brimmed with tears. I glanced down at Mom's hand as they clutched the blanket. So thin, those hands. 
Not the hands that had pulled me out of trees that had picked up fallen bicycles. I looked instead to her eyes, steel blue and determined, like the week when father left us and she'd said, That's all right. We'll get by. Mom, Susan began, and I could see her preparing a long, sad lecture of her own about how little we could do for some cancers even in the second decade of the 21st century. Not the way you think. Mom's voice was like her hands, too thin and weak. I know I can't do anything about this. She gestured toward the tangled blankets, the hospital bed, the pale walls. But I've asked the doctor to take some cells. I still have a few healthy ones left, you know, and they'll keep for some time. I could guess the rest. But Susan, ever the biologist, had her lecture after all. It doesn't work like that. Her voice was gentle, as if she were speaking to one of her two sons, not to Mom. A clone isn't the same as the original. Your clone would be no more like you than, than one identical twin is like the other. It wouldn't be... Susan's voice caught. It wouldn't be you. You don't know, Mom said. None of the clones are old enough to ask yet. They're just babies. I know, Susan said, and was silent. I was silent, too, staring at the floor. I thought about how, even before human cloning was approved, would-be parents had begun lining up, begging for a chance to give birth to themselves, to their siblings, to deceased lovers and friends, ignoring the objections of ethics committees and religious groups. I recalled a headline from the Weekly World Report, Clone Steals Mother's Soul. Against my will, I giggled, and Elise shot me a sharp glance. They explained how it has to be done. Mom went on, voice trembling. The baby can't be raised in a test tube, not like in all those movies. It needs a mother, someone to bring it up right. Her eyes flicked over Susan, over Annalise, her married daughters, the ones with nice jobs, nice houses. I want you to promise. Mom's voice was suddenly strong. I want you to promise that one of you girls will do it. Susan smiled sadly, and I knew she was through arguing. Of course, Mom, whatever you say. Annalise nodded once, fiercely. I said nothing, but Mom didn't seem to notice. I knew I could count on my girls. She closed her eyes then, and she slept. She woke once more after that, and I think we all said goodbye, but I don't remember very clearly. What I do remember is that by the next morning, Mom was gone. A week later, we learned Mom's final wish had been written into the will. We sat on the porch of her house as her lawyer went through the details. A good house, Mom had always said, small and neat and well-kept, nestled among such other houses in a quiet St. Louis suburb. My apartment in the city's crowded central west end had always puzzled her, but I liked the feeling things were happening around me, plays, music, open-air markets, even if I didn't always take part in them. In front of us, a green lawn, grown ragged for the first time I could remember, stretched out to the white picket fence. Susan's husband chased their toddler around the yard, both of them oddly quiet as they ran. In Susan's arms, her other son slept. Annalise muttered as she scanned words that meant nothing to me. Her specialty was real estate law, not inheritances, but she still insisted on reading every last sentence for herself. I was content to let the lawyer explain the details of what Mom wanted for one of her children, within five years, to bear a child with her genetic material. That child's birth mother would inherit the house, or else the house could be sold and the proceeds used to support the child instead. 
I don't think this is legally binding, Annalise said. Her husband stood in the doorway, watching us in silent and glancing every few moments at his watch. Of course not, Susan rocked her son gently. Mom didn't know what she was asking, not really. Annalise shivered. Cloning Mom gives me the creeps. It's just an identical twin, Susan began, but then t she, too, fell silent. The silence stretched between us. You promised, I said at last. Annalise coughed. You can't expect. And Susan, at the same time, even if we did this, it wouldn't be what Mom wanted. But still, I said. Annalise and Susan stared at me, and I knew they didn't understand. I wasn't sure I did either. I'm not going, Mom had said, but she was gone just the same. I swallowed. My face felt hot, but unlike my sisters, I hadn't cried, not even at the funeral. What we did or didn't do shouldn't matter, not now. But it did. Maybe because this was my last chance, my very last chance, to do something Mom would approve of. Tears pricked the corners of my eyes after all, but I fought them and took a deep breath. I'll do it, I said. Susan and Annalise both looked at me as if I were crazy. Getting pregnant was easy. They had the implantation techniques down pretty well by then. The doctor's visits and tests took only a few months. Being pregnant was another matter. Mom used to say she loved it with all three of us, but after months of having my insides shoved around, I decided Mom had forgotten an awful lot. Susan tried to talk me out of carrying the baby until the fourth month, when she declared the nervous system had developed and the fetus was alive. And Elise kept after me a while longer, until she got pregnant herself. I ignored them both, and waited for the nausea and cramps and back pain to pass. Nine months go by, sooner or later, so do twelve hours, during which the thing that kicked against your insides puts all its energy into getting outside instead. I don't know what I thought would happen, at the end of all that blood and pain. Perhaps I imagined I really would see my own mother, staring at me through steel-blue eyes, for all the biology I understand. But what I saw was something small and red and wet, dark blue eyes unfocused, that gripped my finger with her hand. Ten fingers, ten toes, skin soft as Aiderdown, a bald head that felt heavy and right against my chest. My daughter. What else did I expect? When Susan started nursery school, she cried the whole way there. Or at least Mom said she did. I was too young to remember. Mom cried, too, and didn't stop until she returned home, where she could take Annalise and me, both still babies, into her arms. Two years later, Annalise simply decided she didn't want to go. She screamed as Mom made her get dressed, screamed in the car, screamed all the way up the school steps. I remember my first day. Susan and Annalise were both in elementary school by then, and I wanted to go somewhere, too. Mom held my hand as I stepped out of the car, but I pulled away and ran up the path to the school. That Adrian, Mom would say, telling the story years later. She didn't cry at all. She didn't even stop to hug me goodbye. Mom's will insisted the clone be named Jenny, just like her. I put that down on the birth certificate, but called her Jennifer instead. Jennifer Doherty. Traditional names were back in style, after nearly two generations of Amy's with two E's and Jocelyn's, Megan's and Kelsey's. Besides, Jenny Doherty was still mom to me. Jennifer Doherty could be my daughter instead. 
The genetic counseling the doctors made me go through told me what I already knew. That while sometimes identical twins have a lot in common, sometimes they turn out very differently, even when they aren't raised half a century apart. I was determined to do what I could to encourage those differences. I sold Mom's house. Jennifer came home to my apartment. The money from the sale let me stay home with her the first few years. That was just as well. I'd tried jobs at a bookstore, an art council, and a PR firm, and not liked any of them much. Over those years, I watched Jennifer turn from a crying red infant into a small person who could walk, could talk, could tell me she preferred her hair in a thick red ponytail, not trimmed short and practical. Red hair, Susan said once. Who would have guessed? I know she was thinking not of the bald baby who had sprouted hair seemingly overnight, but of Mom with her practical bob, gray for as long as we could remember. Of course, Susan herself had red highlights, and Annalise, too. The year Jennifer turned four, I enrolled her in a nursery school just outside the city limits. Annalise enrolled her daughter, Sandra, at the same school. When Jennifer and I drove up the first day, we found Annalise and Sandy screaming at each other in the parking lot. Sandy wore only one shoe. Annalise fought to get the other onto her foot. "'Want the red shoes!' her daughter cried. "'The red ones!' Annalise sighed. "'The red shoes are torn. These brown ones are much nicer. You want to look nice, don't you?' "'Red shoes! Red!' Jennifer, holding my hand, glanced solemnly down at her own feet. One green sneaker, one blue shoe. That had been her idea, and I hadn't stopped her. I wasn't going to force her into uncomfortable shoes or frilly dresses or anything else. Not unless she wanted them. I wasn't going to cry or try to hold her back when she walked into the school on the first day, either. "'Let's leave Aunt Annalise and Sandy alone, okay?' Jennifer nodded and took my hand. We started up the steps together. In the doorway, Jennifer stopped short. She stared into the room, with its high ceiling, polished floor, and more children than she'd ever seen in one place. Her grip on my hand tightened. I'm not going. Her voice was low but determined. Annalise dragged a screaming Sandy past us and into the building. Both shoes, I noticed, were firmly on Sandy's feet. Not going. Jennifer said again. The set look on her face would have been funny if it hadn't reminded me a little of Mom. Mom had done enough to hold me back. I wouldn't let her hold my daughter back, too. Of course you're going, I said, keeping my voice light. It'll be fine. You'll see. Jennifer looked up at me and then, very quietly, started to cry. She didn't fight when, dry-eyed, I led her inside. It isn't until kids begin school that they really start asking questions. Why is the sky blue? Why are frogs green? Where do frogs and skies come from? Once the questions start, they never end. Where do the words in that book come from? Why can't I understand them like the words on TV? Where do the cookies come from? Why can't I have one before dinner? Where do babies come from? Jennifer was halfway through nursery school before she got around to that. We lay sprawled on my bed, Jennifer's attention on a coloring book, mine on her, both of us ignoring the flickering images on the TV, with its sound and smell turned off. Jennifer was coloring a scene from some Disney holovid. Her characters had purple and green and orange hair, but all the colors were inside the lines. You know, I said, ruffling her curls, it's okay to go outside the lines sometimes. Jennifer shrugged and continued her neat, ordered strokes. Where do babies come from? she asked again. I told her, modifying the biology for a four-year-old understanding. 
Jennifer looked up suspiciously when I was through. I'm too big to fit in your stomach. I smiled. You're not a baby. Not anymore. She bit her lip, pressing down on a crayon so hard it broke. You said I was your baby. That's different. It's, it's only an expression. Oh. Silent, while Jennifer put the lower half of the crayon back in the box. She began sharpening the crayon's upper half in the box's built-in sharpener. Where did you come from? she asked. From inside my mommy, of course. Where did she come from? Jennifer kept sharpening her crayon. From her mother. I pushed Jennifer's hair back from her face. It's mommy's all the way back. Mommy's all the way back! Jennifer giggled. Her laughter was catching. Soon I was laughing, too, laughing and hugging my daughter. This, I thought, was why I had a child. Nothing more complicated than this. Jennifer stopped abruptly. What about the daddies? Daddies all the way back, too? I hesitated. Daddies are different. No, Jennifer insisted. No different. Daddies live with boys. Mommies live with girls. That's why my daddy can't live here. You don't have a father, I said, more sharply than I'd intended. Everyone has a daddy. That's what Sandy says. Sandy doesn't know everything. But if Jennifer had trouble with the idea of a baby coming from its mother's stomach, she wasn't ready to hear about cells and DNA and one person being created from another's genetic material. I know. I've met him. I'll show you. Jennifer turned to the back of her coloring book and started drawing an uneven head on a stick body with lots of red scribbles that might have been a beard. All the pictures I'd seen of Mom's father before he went gray showed straight, dark hair. See? Jennifer held out the picture as if it proved everything. I know. When I didn't answer, I wasn't sure how to answer. Jennifer turned back and added more scribbles. She pressed down on the crayon too hard and it broke again. This time, instead of trying to fix it, she burst into tears. I glanced at the clock. It's late, Jen. You're tired. Time for bed. She cried and kicked all the way to her room, but as soon as I tucked her in, fell instantly asleep. I stayed awake a long time, though. After a while, I put the crayons away, carefully sharpening the end of the red one as I did. So many questions. How are parents ever supposed to know the right answers? The day my father left us, I ran away. I was five, maybe six years old. I sat out on the lawn all morning, watching, waiting for him to return. The air was warm and heavy, spring giving way to summer. Charcoal-colored clouds gathered overhead, but I barely noticed. After a while, Mom walked up behind me and ran a hand through my hair. Come on in, honey. I drew sharply away. Can't. Waiting for Daddy. Your father's not coming back, Adrian. It's just us now. You and me and Susan and Annalise will get by. Mom sighed, sounding more tired than ever before. That scared me, more than the way Dad had slammed the door when he left. He'll be back, I said, soon. Mom shook her head, gray hair falling limp around her shoulders. No, she said. No, he won't. Yes, I spoke with utter conviction. He told me so. He hadn't told me exactly, but I knew that if I'd asked, that's what he would have said. It's going to rain, Mom said. It's time for lunch. No. I don't remember how Mom got me inside. I don't remember whether I ate lunch or not. What I remember is that later, I filled a backpack with the things I needed. A blanket, a stuffed dolphin, some books, bread and peanut butter and Oreos, 
I waited until Mom was helping Susan with her homework. They were studying geography, tossing place names back and forth between them. Morocco, Beijing, Kiev, Osaka. I wondered if my father had gone to one of those places. I wondered how far away they were. I snuck outside and I started walking. I followed the road, certain that if I walked long enough, I would find Dad's car. Rain started falling, so I walked faster. I knew that any moment he would drive up and take me out of the rain. Rain soaked through my skin, raising goosebumps beneath my t-shirt. The sky grew darker. Without warning, a streak of lightning cut through the clouds, followed by the roar of thunder. I broke into a run. A car, the wrong car, skidded by, splashing water up into my face. I started screaming then, running even faster. Another car came to my side and screeched to a stop. I looked inside, expecting my father's face. It was Mom. Get in here, she said. You'll catch your death of cold. I crawled inside. Once inside the heated car, I started shivering and couldn't stop. When it stops raining, I told Mom, I'll go out and look some more. You'll do no such thing. You'll stay right here with your sisters and me, right here where you belong. When Jennifer asked about her father again, I simply said I hadn't known him very well. That was true enough. My grandfather was a half-remembered figure of my early childhood, always off in the background rambling about the war he'd fought in, or else letting my grandmother do all the talking. In a way, it really was Mommy's all the way back. Jennifer moved on from nursery school to kindergarten, from kindergarten to higher grades. I enrolled her in the local elementary school. Her cousin Sandy went off to school in the suburb where Annalise and Susan both lived and where Mom had lived before them. I accepted a job with an accounting firm not far from Jennifer's school. The work was boring, but it paid well. That was important then. The bond market crash had taken care of whatever money remained from the house. Those first years of public school were good years for Jennifer and me. Jennifer loved school, her frightening first day long forgotten. We'd walk together in the morning, and at least once a week I'd take her out on my lunch hour to one of the city's sidewalk cafes. During those lunches, Jennifer showed me cards, papers, pictures, things she'd learn and drawn. It's a horse. A boy from school. The sky. Wide expanses of blue she showed me one day in the third grade, expanses which made working in accounting office seem a small thing, nothing compared to having lunch with my daughter, to doing homework with her in the evenings. I smiled, thinking of how tall this small person had grown, of how wonderful it was to hear her speaking in full sentences. A man and woman in suits hurried by, and just then I couldn't understand what they were rushing for. I brushed a stand of hair from my daughter's face, thinking about how she could draw anything, do anything, be anything she wanted. This one's a house, she said, pushing my hand away and showing me another picture. Our house. We don't live in a house, I said absently. Two college students sat talking at a table beside us, and I wondered at the fact that one day Jennifer would be their age. We live in an apartment. Jennifer was old enough now that she didn't claim things simply because she wanted them to be true. It's the house we're going to buy, she said instead. Really? Yes, a big house with a white picket fence that goes around and around and around. She swept her hands toward the sky. Jennifer had never seen Mom's old house. I'd never driven by, not once I'd sold it. Why a fence? I asked, more lightly than I felt. Because, Jennifer hesitated, because that's how houses are supposed to be. Who told you that? Sandy? Jennifer looked puzzled. No, she said. No, I told me that.
Mom had had her fence repainted every spring. It wouldn't do to let such things go, she said. It wouldn't do to look poor. With all the nights Mom sat up fretting over bills in the kitchen, I thought maybe we were poor, but I never said so. Mom had worked as an office assistant for the same construction firm since the year Dad had left us. Her boss liked her, but he didn't like giving her raises. She never seemed to consider going anywhere else, though. Sometimes a fence post broke and needed to be replaced. The year I turned ten, I discovered that one of those broken posts made a perfect sword. I stood out in the front yard, jabbing at the air. I chased a band of pirates around in circles, then up into a tree, ignoring the way my jeans tore on a branch as I climbed. Somehow, once I got into the tree, I became the pirate, the fence post a telescope for gazing out over the ocean. The grass and sidewalk below seemed very far away. I could sail around the world. I could do anything at all. Adrian! Adrian, where are you? For once, Mom didn't see me among the leaves, and I didn't call down to her. I was a pirate. I was sailing away. Eventually, the calls disappeared. Hours, or years of sailing later, I heard someone climbing up my tree after me. I jabbed downward with my telescope, which had become a sword again. Ow, stop that! Susan carefully lifted her skirt and sat down beside me. Mom's been looking for you, Susan said. She got really scared when she couldn't find you. I stabbed the air with my sword. Go away. I'm a pirate. Susan laughed. You can't be a pirate, silly. There are no pirates in Missouri. I hadn't thought of that, but didn't say so. Ignoring the heat that crept through my cheeks, I answered, So I'll be the first. Yeah, right, Susan said. You can be anything, I told Jennifer. A pirate, an astronaut, a reporter who travels around the world. We stood inside the gateway arch, some six hundred feet above the ground. Annalise and Sandy had been with us, but Sandy had complained so much. The arch was boring and a waste of time, she said, just like school. The Annalise had finally dragged her back down. The arch wasn't as tall as the Empire State Building, to be fair, or the Sears Tower, or that huge skyscraper they were building in Calcutta. But still, downtown spread out beneath us, the whole city at our feet. A dusting of snow made the city seem silent, full of magic. The air was crisp and blue, less hazy than during my childhood, when cars were still gas, not electric. Jennifer, nearly eleven now, stood near a row of tiny windows, her long red hair pulled back in combs. I still hadn't told her where that hair came from, though Annalise and Susan argued I was overdue to explain. But there had been a lot of controversy around cloning recently, more than when the procedure was first approved, and I didn't want to expose Jennifer to any of the protests or reporters' questions. When she asked about her father, I gave her my grandfather's first name, made up a last name, and said he'd left before she was born. My daughter was already nearly as tall as me and far more dressed up. Purple tights made her legs seem thin beneath a shimmery silver skirt and bodysuit. I'd let her wear a tiny bit of lipstick and nail polish. In the few pictures of Mom we had around the house, she wore long, dark skirts, conservative blouses, neatly pinned hair. When Jennifer looked at those photos, she saw nothing more than an ordinary family resemblance. Lean forward, I told her. Look how far you can see. What if the arch falls over? I couldn't tell whether Jennifer was serious or not. What if too many people lean the same way? A boy tried to get us to do that on the bus today, she said solemnly. What happened? Jennifer shrugged her thin shoulders. The bus driver pulled over and made him stop. Lean forward, I said again. You won't fall. Tentatively, Jennifer pressed her nose against the glass. Where's our house, she said. All the way out there, I said, squinting and pointing toward the suburbs beyond the city. Too far to see. 
Jennifer had been right about our moving into a house. She drew houses for so many years that I finally checked into prices. Houses cost less than renting, once I came up with the down payment. We lived 40 minutes away now, in the same school district as Annalise and Sandy, as Susan and her two boys. Houses also had a lot of hidden expenses. I didn't really like working in an accounting office, but I didn't think about leaving either. For a while, Jennifer and I watched the city in silence. Then we crossed to the other side of the arch. Jennifer hesitated, but then leaned forward. The Mississippi River glistened below, a ribbon winding between the city and the snow-covered far bank. Beyond that river were the other cities. Chicago and Milwaukee. Balta, Washington and New York. Beyond the cities, other countries. Eurasia and Russia. China and Japan. Want to go up on the space station sometime? I asked. I know someone at work who might be able to get us tickets. Not this year, but maybe next. Jennifer stepped carefully back from the glass. You can go anywhere. I won't stop you. Not once you're grown. Jennifer glanced at the floor uneasily. Then she shrugged as if shaking the words off. About that boy, she said abruptly. The one who pushed the bus? Yeah? His name is Jonathan. She turned from the window and started for the elevator back down. Over the next few years, I heard the name of lots of boys from my daughter. Timothy, Michael, Jason, Marcus. A new name each week, it sometimes seemed. Had I been like that, too, when I was a teenager? No. With me, it was always Mom asking for names and my not having them. Surely there's someone, she said once as she loaded the dishwasher. I remember the odd gleam in her eye, the way she kept looking at me, begging me to tell her. I was 15 then. Annalise was out on a date. She always was Saturday nights. Susan, in college, was on campus studying. I sat alone at the kitchen table, wishing I had something to confide. A bit of ladylike shyness is fine and well. Glasses clinked as Mom spoke. But how do you expect to find someone to spend your life with if you don't even let the boys know you exist? I shrugged. I wasn't so sure I wanted to spend my life with anyone. I stared down at one torn sneaker. My jeans were torn, too. My most comfortable pair. If you would only learn how to dress... Mom squinted at a spot on a plate, turned the faucet on to scrub it away. Perhaps wear a little makeup? Maybe I want to live alone, like you. As far as I could tell, Mom had managed all right on her own. Mom set the plate slowly aside and turned to look down at me. Even when I stood, Mom was taller. I'd never caught up with her, any more than I had with Susan or Annalise. Mom's face looked strangely tired. For the first time, I saw small lines around her mouth and eyes. Oh, Adrian, you don't want to be like me. You don't want to grow up to be a lonely old woman like your mother. You're not old, I insisted. Mom closed her eyes and let out a long breath. I just want to see my daughters taken care of. I could take care of myself, and I almost said so. But then I saw that Mom's eyes were wet, wavery. I'd never seen her cry. I didn't want to start now. I turned away. There might be someone, I muttered. His name is... His name is Tyler, but I don't really know him very well. When I glanced up again, Mom was smiling. She sat down next to me. Tell me about him. Tell me everything. And so I did, that day and for many days after. Mom seemed happy, listening to my descriptions, even though they were so vague they could have described anyone. Annalise wasn't so easily fooled. She cornered me two weeks later. You don't know anyone named Tyler, she said. I avoided her sharp eyes. How would you know? I know. 
A slow grin crossed her face. You don't know anyone named Tyler, but I do, and I can set you up with him. Sure, I told Annalise. Why not? Mom had already begun asking to meet Tyler. I wasn't sure how long I could keep coming up with excuses. Annalise rolled her eyes. Don't sound so excited. No, I said. That'd be great, really. And it was great. Tyler and I dated on and off for three years, and Mom stopped worrying about me. We even slept together for a while, while I was a junior and he was a senior, though I never told Mom about that. I didn't want her to take us too seriously. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life with Tyler, any more than he wanted to spend it with me. He was already applying to colleges in other states. Seeing his brochures and applications, I'd begin writing to schools in other places myself. San Francisco, Minneapolis, North New Orleans, Albuquerque. Mom found an application from the University of Arizona one day. This must be a mistake, she said, tossing the envelope into the trash. They can't expect you to go so far away. I dug the application out of the garbage that night. I didn't correct Mom any more than I had corrected her about Tyler in those weeks before he'd existed. Eventually, Jennifer returned to Jonathan again, the boy who had tried to tilt the bus over. At thirteen, Jonathan had a mess of brown curls and a mischievous look. He was clearly nothing more than a friend. By fifteen, the curls had been tamed, and he and Jennifer had grown oddly shy around each other. The autumn they'd turned seventeen, they came to me after school to announce they were engaged. Well, not engaged exactly, Jennifer explained. She was taller than me now, with somber blue eyes and red hair that fell loose down her back. That hair, I knew, would be gray by the time she was thirty. It's more like a pre-engagement, Jennifer said. She and Jonathan sat across the kitchen table from me, munching on Oreos and drinking milk. I'd offered Jennifer some wine her last birthday, after the drinking age had been lowered. She had accepted politely enough, but only finished half the glass. She preferred milk or Coke or carbonated tea and Oreos. Sandy said she'd be maid of honor, Jennifer went on, so long as we don't make her wear a dress. Don't you think you're a bit young? I blurted. Jennifer's face went dark. She glanced down at the ring on her right hand, set with a chip of some blue, pale stone. "'We won't get engaged until we're both eighteen, Jonathan said. "'And even then, the wedding—' He turned to Jennifer. A strange, soft look crossed his face. I'd seen that look on a guy I'd dated once, when Jennifer was still a baby. I'd broken the relationship off as soon as possible afterwards. "'We won't get married until we're nineteen, or maybe twenty, Jonathan explained. "'That's not so young.' What about college? What if you go to school in different states? I've already been accepted at Forest Park Community College, Jonathan said. And I thought I'd enroll at the University of Missouri virtual campus. Jennifer slid the ring back and forth along her finger. Study from home? But all those brochures. Jennifer's grades were good. She'd been invited to apply around the country, around the world. She could go to London, Greece, spend a semester in Antarctica, or on the moon. Don't you want to at least get out and meet new people? Jennifer took Jonathan's hand in her own. I like the people I already know. But think of all the places. I took a deep breath. At least wait until after you finish school. Jennifer didn't answer. Jonathan looked uncomfortably from one of us to the other, then glanced down at his watch. I've got to go. Game tonight. He played football in the fall, soccer in the spring. I tried to get Jennifer to play too, but she'd never been interested. I'll walk you to the door, she said. They walked away quietly, stood outside talking for a while. I heard Jonathan drive away. When Jennifer returned to the kitchen, her face was red and swollen. You could at least be happy for me, 
she cried, brushing angry tears away. I am happy. I began restlessly pacing the room, piling dishes into the sink. It's just, you have your whole life ahead of you. You could do anything, be anything. I hate to see you cut off all your options. Jennifer laughed bitterly. If I can do anything, then why can't I do this? She looked straight at me, blue eyes suddenly hard. Mom's eyes. Without thinking, I stepped back. I don't want to be by myself, my daughter said. I don't want to work a job I hate and live all alone. I don't hate my job. It was a job, nothing more. The days when I thought it should be seemed a long time ago. And I like living alone. I lived alone before you were born. Jennifer collapsed into a chair and let out a troubled sigh. I'm not like you, Mom. Can't you understand that? I raised her. Who else could she be like? But I knew the answer before I even asked. I watched as Jennifer sat with her head in her hands, red hair obscuring her face. That wasn't my hair, and the eyes it hid weren't my eyes. Why should anything else be mine? Sometimes identical twins turned out very different, but not always. I thought of college, of the whole city, the whole world, at Jennifer's feet, of crayon drawings filled with huge skies. I thought of steel-blue eyes. The world would never be hers. She didn't want it. She wanted only to stay where she already was. Just like Jenny, I whispered. Was this why I'd never told her about Mom, for fear that if she knew, this very thing would happen? But Mom was stronger than me. She always had been. Just like Jenny, after all. Hey, Jennifer looked up, startled. That's what all the kids at school call me. How'd you know? I didn't answer. Simply turned and left the room. Children, I firmly believed, should never see their parents cry. The day I was accepted by the University of Missouri, St. Louis, Mom beat me to the mail. She held the envelope out to me as I walked in the door. I'm so proud of you, she said. I know you'll do well in college, like your sister's. I read the letter slowly. I wouldn't meet Mom's eyes. Mom laughed. Why so glum? I know you can handle the work. All my daughters are so smart. I took a deep breath. I'm not going to UMSL. What do you mean? You can't throw away this opportunity. I was accepted by UCLA last week, Mom. I've been wondering how to tell her. I'm going to school in Los Angeles. Mom laughed again, but this time the sound had an odd edge. Don't be silly. Los Angeles is 2,000 miles away. You're not going to school in Los Angeles. Yes. Yes, I am. What about all those earthquakes? Los Angeles was much safer now that the big one had finally hit. The city was eager to convince out-of-towners of this fact, eager enough that they'd offered me a decent scholarship. But Mom just shook her head when I tried to explain. Your sisters are here. I'm here. Why would you go away? Mom signed the acceptance letter from UMSL herself and paid the deposit as well. I paid the deposit to UCLA with money I'd earned working part-time after school. I increased my hours to help with the expenses my scholarship wouldn't cover. I tried to talk to Mom about my plans, but she didn't hear anything I said. Wouldn't hear. Not even the day I left. She drifted room to room like a shadow, refusing to speak to me. I'll be home for Thanksgiving, I said, for Christmas, for Susan's wedding. Mom didn't answer. My sisters were the ones who helped me pack and made me promise to send lots of V-mail. I don't understand why you're leaving, Susan said, but still, you ought to be seen off properly. Annalise said only that she was impressed I had the nerve to go, and that she looked forward to having the house to herself once I left and Susan got married. They both stood in the driveway and waved as I drove away in a used car I'd also bought myself. Mom stayed inside at the window.
she didn't even come out to say goodbye. I was across the state line, well into Oklahoma, before I started crying. Once I started, I couldn't stop. She could have said goodbye, I thought. She could have been happy for me. I shouldn't have to do this alone. I shouldn't have to run away just to go to college. It started raining, just like the first time I'd run away. I didn't see the car skidding across the on-ramp until it was almost too late. I swerved, slamming hard into the divider. I heard the screech of brakes, the crunch of metal. Then the world went very still, no sound but the falling rain. I tried to lift my head and blacked out instead. I woke in a hospital room, my shoulder throbbing, my head a dull ache. Mom sat in a chair beside the bed, watching me. She reached out and squeezed my hand, and somehow I knew that everything was all right. Which was strange. I never thought everything was all right, just because Mom was there. I slept some more. When I woke again, Mom told me, The doctor says you can go home tomorrow. You wrenched your shoulder and had a bit of a concussion, but otherwise you're all right. She let out a breath, as if needing to convince herself of the words. You're all right. I'll get you home and set you up in your room to recover. UCLA. My throat hurt. The words came out hoarser than I intended. You can't expect to go now. You'll need time to rest, to heal. Next semester, then. Adrian. Mom spoke as if I were still the child in her picture, insisting on climbing trees, refusing to understand that the camera and my sisters were both waiting. You could have been killed, she shivered. Don't you understand that? Car crashes happen in Missouri, too. The room felt suddenly warm. I wanted to toss off the blankets, but my shoulder hurt too much to move. You're not going, Mom said, her voice firm. That's all there is to it. Neither Mom nor I said anything more, but much later that night, I woke to hear her softly crying. I hated when Mom cried. I kept my eyes closed so she wouldn't know I heard. Mom whispered very low, You're just like him, you know, leaving me the first chance you get. It was a long time before I slept. The next morning, I let Mom drive me home. As we pulled into the driveway, I stared at the fence posts, thinking that they no longer looked like swords or telescopes or anything else. The fence was just a fence, nothing more. It's good to have you back, Mom said. I would leave again some day, I thought, as I followed her inside and searched for the papers from UMSL. But first there was college to finish, and then I had to find work, and then Mom got sick, and then there was Jennifer, Jennifer who wanted nothing more than to stay home, to study from home, to get married and start a home of her own. I never did get around to leaving. The night she announced her pre-engagement, Jennifer padded into my room very late. I was awake, sitting up and trying to read. Jennifer crawled under the foot of my bed. In a long pink nightgown and fuzzy slippers, hair braided down her back, she looked much younger than seventeen. Is it such a terrible thing I'm doing? She sounded young, too. Her eyes were red and swollen. No, I said. No, it's just that there's so much I hoped you would do first. You were always trying to make me go away. Sometimes I wonder whether you really want me here at all. Of course I want you, but it's not my place to hold you back. Is it your place to kick me out? I wished my mom had kicked me out. I wish she'd actually encouraged me to do something. I wished my daughter weren't so much like her. Marriage can wait, I said softly. Not everything can. A wind blew outside, rustling the autumn leaves. 
Jennifer sighed, echoing the sound. You really think I should call it off, don't you? She twisted her braid in one hand. Not forever, I told her. Only for a little while. A few years. Jennifer nodded, but her eyes held a strange look, a defeated look. The look of a four-year-old following her mother into nursery school, even though they both know she doesn't want to go. The look of a 17-year-old letting her mother drive her home because she can't bear to hurt her one more time, to tell her no yet again. It shouldn't have hurt, I thought defiantly. It shouldn't have hurt her to let me be who I wanted. And it shouldn't hurt me now to let my daughter be who she wanted. But it did. Mom, I whispered. For the first time, I understood how she felt watching me drive away. If I asked her now, Jennifer might call off the engagement. If I asked her, she might try to be who I wanted and fail and hate us both. Did I mean it when I said I wouldn't hold her back? Did I really? Or was I the one who was just like Jenny after all? What do you want me to do? Jennifer's voice was low and tentative, waiting. So I told her. What I want, I said, brushing a stray red hair from her face and looking straight into her serious blue eyes, is to help you plan the wedding. And that was our story. This hits home to me as I recognize the hypocrisy we live when we tell our kids they can do anything. If we really believed that, why aren't we chasing our dreams harder? In reading this story, I realized that I've put some of my own dreams, such as continuing my education, on the back burner for reasons such as not the right time, or do I really need it, or I probably can't afford it. And yet I encourage my daughter to be all she can be. I watch TV while I encourage her to read more. I remember how freaking boring school was, except for when I was goofing off with my friends as I push her to pay more attention in class. Older folks say that kids don't appreciate the opportunities given to them. Youth is wasted on the young, and all that. But really, what holds adults back is inertia more than anything else. What really gets me about this story is that our narrator never once tried to get away after her mother died. She could have traveled the world with her daughter. She could have moved into another city. She could have looked harder for a job that would inspire her. It reminds me of why the movie It's a Wonderful Life depresses the hell out of me. And I know I'm going to get hate comments in the forum for it. It's the most beloved Christmas movie, all that stuff. It pushes you to believe that home, hearth, and family really are the only things worthwhile in life. And any dreams to seek adventure and creative pursuits are just frivolity. Yes, home and family and love are very, very important. But shuttering your dreams away for practical reasons causes you to die a little bit inside. I'd like to thank our narrator after trying to stop raising her daughter like she wished she'd been raised, will begin to look at what she wants in her own life and take steps to change her own destiny. So, enough of that. Bill Peters has returned this week with more feedback. Take it away, Bill. Hey, this is Bill with Feedback for episode 250, Eros Philia Agape, by Podcastle Editor Emeritus. Rachel Swirsky, and read for us by R. Mer Lafferty. The story was the first of ours that heads into the shoals of novelettes, and was fairly well received, though some said they had trouble connecting to the story even while they admired the craft. Electric Paladin said, I really felt for Lucian, and I understand why he had to leave. He had no idea who he was, what he was, or how to love. 
it's a tragedy and his journeys towards away from and towards human self-awareness was poignant and striking. I like that Eros, Philia, Agape ended on a positive note. I like to envision that as the future the story was headed towards, but I can't let myself forget that the story was definitely presenting it as a possibility. No more, no less. What Kayla said. I wish I could have read this story when I was still an English major in college. The essay practically writes itself. The process Lucian was going through fascinated me, and it's exactly why I come to science fiction for intellectual stimulation. But the characters made it a bitter pill to swallow. All of them are self-centered and self-loathing, miserable, and competing to see who can be the biggest jerk to others. I felt no warmth in any of the relationships. And before I go, I wanted to take a moment to congratulate the winners of the Second Escape Pod Flash Contest. London Iron by William Hallier won first place, with Light and Lies by Gideon Fostick and Wheels of Blue Stilton by Nicholas Carter, both tying for second place after a long and hard-fought contest. We're still winnowing down the honorable mentions, and we look forward to bringing you these flash pieces and more in the future. There's a lot of great civil criticism on the entries that didn't make it in the contest, and I hope everyone that took part, learned something, had fun reading all of them. I know I did. And that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be bringing you the feedback for episode 251, Unexpected Outcomes. And thank you, Bill, as always, for taking care of feedback. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Blog about us, talk about us, tweet about us, or donate to us. We love all these things, especially the last one, because it allows us to pay our authors. Our PayPal button can be found at escapepod.org. And be sure to check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, both at their .org domains. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Bill Peters as the assistant to the regional manager, or the ARM. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. And our quote is from an unknown author, unfortunately. If at first you don't succeed, do it like your mother told you. Take of that what you will. We'll see you next week with a strange little tale about decisions that must be made. Until then, be mighty. <laughs>